0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels karstow where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're newer to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes you may have missed Like last week's episode with Nick, where we, among many topics, discussed the pros and the cons of trend-following the trend-followers, which is a bit of a mouthful to say, frankly. Also, I would like to really encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Harry had a great conversation with Nikki Ferguson, who specializes in different types of analysis of the energy markets and what really drives the price of them, which I think you'll find a bit different and highly interesting. And of course, not to forget, I really do hope that you will make time to tune in to the episodes that Alan and I have done with the largest CTA firms in the world, and where we really try to take the pulse of all of these successful managers more or less at the same moment in time, and cover a wide range of relevant topics for the firms themselves and the industry as a whole. And we still have quite a few more to publish in this series. So, Alan, it seems like we speak on a very regular basis at the moment. Uh, How are you doing? How are things in Dublin?
1: Yeah, everything is good here. Um, Looking forward to the weekend and,
0: uh, yeah, good to catch up with you again. Absolutely, likewise. And uh, we do actually, and I say this every time, by the way, but we do actually have some great topics that we want to discuss today. So I hope people will uh, enjoy our conversation. Now, we are recording a day early due to my... uh, traveling schedule at the moment. Um, So I don't have a detailed market wrap really to share. I have not followed the market so closely this week, but we are instead going to uh, discuss a few more global macro observations. And I think, and I find this interesting, I think last month we did the same and we were talking about how investors are pricing at the time, you know, uh, lower inflation for sure, lower interest rates um, uh, later the year in the year. And we may even have said um, that it looked like investors were pricing markets for perfection. Maybe not so much this time around. So what are your thoughts on this, Alan? Yeah, I, th- I think that's uh,
1: actually, I'd forgotten we'd use that, that uh, phrase, but, but that seems to be the case because actually, I mean, when I look back at markets over the last maybe six months or so, and you go back to, You know, the summer of last year, August, September, October, equities were falling and and the big fear in markets was really stagflation, you know, we had this high inflation and and there was, you know, a general uh, fear of, of recession. As we moved into December, I would say of last year, obviously risk assets had rebounded a bit, and I think there was a, a you know some of the the worst of the inflation numbers seemed to have been behind us. Markets had kind of transitioned into probably a soft landing type scenario. Yes, there was going to be a downturn, but inflation was going to come down, and the downturn probably wouldn't be too bad when we got to the end of January, I think markets had gone as far as as we said kind of price for perfection, really pricing kind of a Goldilocks scenario again of you know we'd had the news that. About China reopening, um, the economic numbers out of Europe weren't as bad, the numbers out of the US seemed to be holding up and inflation was coming down. So it seemed to be the best of of both worlds in terms of, you know, no sign of the actual inflation and and inflation of, of recession and inflation coming down. We've had a big change, I would say, during the course of February. You know, if you look at the bond markets in particular. 10 uh, year yields are up about 60 basis points 2 year yields up about 70 i think and if you look at the euro dollar futures um, you know um, uh, you know probably about the same uh, in terms of additional hike space in and, and the market really taking out that expectation of rate cuts you know that 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 people had built in um and a similar scenario in 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 europe so i think what we have is is that certainly the theme that has emerged now is this kind of no landing you know from from kind of soft landing to no landing i think what when people say no landing what they're talking about is is a delayed landing or basically rates staying higher for 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 longer and and the landing not coming to till next year um, so i think that's been the big change and and obviously what that's meant is obviously higher yields equities have held up okay it's been choppy in the, in the last week or two kind of have have come off the highs a bit but 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 not a big sell off and obviously we've had a a big rebound in, in the in the dollar. So so I think that's the big story. Um, I mean, you can say, well, what changed in February? Uh, and I think a few things changed. One, uh, the actual inflation numbers have 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 picked up again. And um, so, you know, we had well, we had a couple of things. First of all, there was revisions to the CPI data. So not just the most recent numbers, but the the, the previous numbers were were revised and they were revised higher. And then, if you look at the uh, the PCE data and the core PCE. They were stronger than expected uh, last month. Um, so if you look at, say, the three-month annualised uh, core PCE, uh, you know, in January, if you're looking at the December number, it was down to 3.6%, but now that's back up to 4.7%. So, and even if you look at the kind of the stripping out every everything, I know a lot of people are looking at the super core services, ex housing and energy, and that's still going at about 4.1% um, annualised. So very much a sense that 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 okay, while it looked like you know that 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 we were in the midst of a disinflationary uh, process that 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 looks less clear now on the back of these revisions and on the fact that you know we've had uh, stronger numbers recently and also a sense that you know there was a lot of factors that were pushing down inflation you know reopening you know s- uh, supply chains normalizing you know the big the, the big uh, fall down in, in used car prices. So if we're not going to have that disinflationary force on the good side going forward, you know, then then, then inflation might settle at this kind of higher level of, of around 4, 4% or so. And obviously on the economic side, you know, we've had a pretty pretty robust data too. You know, non-farm payrolls uh, last month was strong. We've had strong inflation, uh, sorry, strong uh, spending and, and wage growth. So as I say, the, the overall scenario is definitely, you know, uh, one of, stronger than expected uh, economic data and and probably a bit of a surprise for people on the inflation side and 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 you know I think we can delve into why that was the case but at a high level I think that's been the theme.
0: Yeah, I mean the great thing about these conversations Alan is we can go back and listen to our last conversation and either find out how wrong we were or maybe how right we were at the time. But I think we nailed it to some extent because I think we were skeptical about, you know, this is almost too good to be true at the time. And um, it's un, it would be very unusual if after such a dramatic economic uh, shift and regime change we've had in the last couple of years, that everything would just kind of, you know, go according to uh, a textbook. Uh, so uh, I'm personally not surprised about these things. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a a, um, a straight line either up or down. Um, And I think that, um, and maybe not you and I have talked about this before, but I know that it's one of the things that um, I've mentioned, perhaps not recently, but it's this thing about inflation. And and my understanding is you can have predictable inflation, you can have unpredictable inflation. I think for me it's always been... Been um, you know, my my view that this is probably going to be pretty unpredictable because we there's so many things that we haven't seen before that's that's taking place, and therefore it um it wouldn't surprise me if we're gonna see these uh, changes. And actually, you could say to some extent that um maybe the central banks did pivot, but they pivoted from being dovish to hawkish again. So it's not really the pivot people were hoping for, but there has certainly been a change also in their tone uh to some extent. And one thing, um, and this is not necessarily back-adjusted data to perfection, but I did notice on a continuous chart of the Bund that the Bund made a new low uh, yesterday, I think, uh, which is quite interesting in price. Uh, U.S. bonds not quite uh, making a new low compared to uh, October or whenever it was we had a a low last time. Uh, So that is interesting. But then at the same time, I have to say I'm probably a little bit surprised that we have new all-time highs in the last within the last couple of weeks for from the DAX and and the FTSE. I mean if you think about all the things that's going on in Europe right now you that's probably not what I would have put first on my um, on my agenda, saying yeah, equities are going to make new all-time highs. Um, so lots of uh, interesting uh, stuff. Uh, definitely, equity investors still enjoying some sense of optimism, but you can't really say that about bond investors uh, at at the moment.
1: Your point on on Europe, you had ten-year yields in in Germany up to um, you know about two point seven percent, and I was looking at you know the board futures. Uh, for December 2023 so this year now you know pricing in four percent rates uh by the end of this year um and you know it's just remarkable when you look back at where that contract was trading at the start of last year it was basically pricing and rates still at zero uh, at the end of this year. So, like in in the course of of a year, you know, or thirteen months or so, fourteen months, I guess, uh, you know, we've gone from pr- the market expecting rates to still be at zero at the end of this year to to now expecting it to be at at four percent in Europe, which is, uh, you know, and that's reflecting the fact that you know we are seeing that stickiness in in inflation in in the eurozone as well. You know, um, core inflation still running at well over five percent in in Europe. So whereas maybe at uh, going back 6 months or so there was a sense the inflation problem was more, more going to be more of a challenge in the US now it's looking like it could be more of a challenge in in Europe so as you say yeah surprising you know certainly uh, we'll get on to talk about equity markets and, and and CGA positioning I think in equity markets but but there has been a stronger uptrend in European equities you know we had the big big run up in, in in January and uh, they've held in well so far. So, yeah, I, it's it's a little bit surprising, but that's what the market is, the way it's trading at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, okay, so just a short comment on the inflation. I do have something completely different I wanted to remind you about what we talked about also a month ago. But but just on the inflation front, I don't really follow all the details and the narratives. But, but I did come across that in Denmark at the moment, they're going through... A lot of the salary negotiations uh, in in the labor market uh, in the private sector right now, and um, the first time the first ones I saw that came out was saying kind of the headline four percent, but over two years. It didn't sound like much, and I was surprised that people would even consider it. Frankly, because that's clearly way below what inflation rates are. But I am seeing now that some of these uh, negotiations have kind of panned out in 4% plus per year now for two years. So we are we are getting to these points where, as you say, inflation could be much more sticky because it's filtering out into some of these other parts of the economy. So I just wanted to mention that maybe you follow some of the other ones. I know obviously in the UK there's strikes. I mean, I just came back from the UK. There's strikes like everywhere, teachers, uh, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. But... I also wanted to remind you about another thing that just shows you how uncertain or how unpredictable the world is right now and, of course, why we so much love to be in the systematic space, and that is last month we were talking, you know, I wouldn't say surprised but, but this was definitely news at the time that NATO was considering sending tanks to Ukraine. You know, five weeks later, now we're talking about fighter jets that's more or less, you know, slotted in for being i mean it just shows you how the world is changing so rapidly at the moment so no wonder it's hard to be an investor right now and uh, you know diversification is going to probably stand people well if they can find some really true diversification but but you know we can go anywhere we can stay on this uh, alan tell me where you want to go with this yeah i guess the other topic that i think
1: that's interesting that's coming through on this and and i think we've talked about it before is um you know I, you know as as we say we're we're now looking at rates up to 4% in in Europe you know and, and and above 5 um i saw um the economist jason furman saying that the fed needs to get to about 6% um uh, to, to, to for, for the economy to uh to slow down it, it's kind of interesting because if you go back to the start of the tightening cycle most people i, I say most people i mean i've been generalizing but there was a sense that rates couldn't go above maybe the peak of the last tightening cycle which was about two and a quarter two and a half percent because you you know rates go above there everything will break and there's so much debt and everything will crack now we're up to you know heading towards five and and what we're seeing is that the economy seems to be not slowing in response to higher rates so why is that um and i think I, i think it comes back to this this expression you know that economists use frequently but people kind of don't really stop and think about it, that monetary policy you know acts with long and variable lags you know so you know what does that mean it means that when you raise interest rates you don't it it there's not a linear response that that is always the same that the rates go up 25 basis points and the economy slows by half a percent or there's nothing like that so we wrote a paper on this uh, back in december on that topic long and variable lags and if you look at you know, the, the last uh, five tightening cycles in in the US, you know, back in 1998, you know, Fed funds went up uh, about three and a quarter percent. And then you did have a downturn, you, you know, late 80s into early 90s savings and loans crisis. The, the unemployment rate went up by two and a half, 2.8 percentage points in that period. So that was what you'd expect. But then you had 1994, you know, Fed raise rates three uh, percent, but then, but you had you did have a soft landing in that situation. The, the unemployment rate only went up zero point four percent. Then you had 99 to 2000, um, rates went up at one and three quarter percent, and you did have a you know you had a significant. Uh, obviously, you had the, the dot com bubble burst, and the unemployment rate went up two and a half percent then, uh, following that. Uh, then you had the tightening cycle 04 to 06. And in that period then, you know, initially the economy seemed to be able to withstand higher rates, but then ultimately we had the global financial crisis in, in, starting in 07 into 08. Unemployment went up uh, over 5% in that period. And then again, uh, you know, the tightening cycle very slow initially between 2015 to 2018. Um, in total, rates went up a quarter percent And it was by and large a soft landing until we had COVID. So, you know, you don't really know. Sometimes you can, so you don't know how quickly the, the the economy is going to respond to higher rates, and what's the magnitude of the response to higher rates. And what we're seeing at the moment is is very little response. And that could be, there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of reasons for that. You know, it could be because we still have the excess cash in the system from all the stimulus uh, that we got during COVID. That could be one reason. Um, another point is, you know, how... QE has, because of QE, uh, central banks hold a lot of assets now, and banks would have held those assets before, so banks would have had losses on their fixed income portfolios, and that would be impacting them, but that's not happening this time around, so that kind of bank dis- dis- intermediation has, has, has changed. And it could be that people have already locked in low rates, but they will have to refinance maybe at some point in the future. So you could have a delayed response. So, you know, all of these things, like what share of of the debt is is fixed versus floating and and when when the refinancing is going to take place, all of those factors impact to this, you know, the extent to which higher rates impact the economy. And that's why you have this uh, variability. Whereas people tend to think, you know, very linear, linearly, and rates go up, the economy should slow. But actually, maybe it won't for a while, and then if the Fed does more, then we'll get a, an even bigger response later on. So that's why I think it is extremely difficult to time these things. Uh, and yeah, it goes back to having a rules-based approach for, for managing <laughs> risk around it.
0: Yeah, it's funny how we always get back to that, but anyways, <laughs> if, the other thing that I've been pondering a little bit uh, when you mention all of these things, I mean, this is, of course, uh, my thesis. Uh, in not not in the sense that I necessarily came up with it, but I certainly adopted it a couple of years ago. And you know that the world was changing, and um, I couldn't necessarily two years ago uh, articulate it the way I uh, I did last year. But I think certainly this idea of of going from globalization to deglobalization, I think that sums it up pretty pretty neatly. But when you if you internalize that that's just a major major shift because we had globalization for you know 70 years and that's really where kind of the whole world trade got um you know in in invent now, I wouldn't say invented because of course it's been there for centuries but but it certainly got um put on on steroids and uh, we we managed to get this incredibly efficient uh, world economy so i'm just thinking okay well if if we now are going in the other direction <laughs> So we're going to into deglobalization. Not saying we are for sure, but it certainly smells like that way, like that. You know, couldn't you expect that some of these normal economic uh, reaction patterns that everybody is kind of putting their uh, chips on, maybe they're not going to hold up anymore? I mean, maybe something's completely different going to happen, and I just don't see a lot of a lot of commentators op- you know, leaving any room. For for these things, we're still expecting the Fed to react in a certain way and the economy to react in a certain way. And I'm thinking, I don't know if it's going to react the way it used to react because it's changing and it's changing to something that none of us have ever experienced. Um, and we've just been through two episodes that none of us had experienced in the first place. Anyway, so so I'm very open for surprises, uh, let me put it that uh, way, in the numbers, in, uh, you know, just the fact, as you say, that unemployment is holding, uh, you know, it's, it, it's it's really holding up very well. Um, that's a surprise. And, and why? M- maybe it'll continue to do that. Maybe, you know, this is also this, you know, the new, new economy. Of course, we know from the demographics that there are certainly some big, uh, shifts uh, in certain countries right now with uh, boomers retiring. And maybe we haven't really probably accounted for that. We know that the Chinese suddenly came out uh, a few months ago saying, oh, we overcounted 100 million. And by the way, most of them are young people. So what does that do? And and so on and so forth. So all I'm saying is that I think a lot of these economic textbooks that we all expect to, um, to deliver some kind of, um, uh, how should I put it, um, Expected outcomes. I'm not so sure that, that that we're going to have them like that. Uh, anyways, that's just my.
1: No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, like you've. It's true. You've got the uncertainty about the, the the future, but you also have the uncertainty about the the present. You know, you talk about deglobalization, which is something we say, and we kind of say it is something. You know, that that is evolving, but there is a debate around that as well at the moment among economists. I know Adam Toos and. Neil Ferguson, the the is economic historian. Or there's a debate as to whether it, it's deglobalization or, or slow globalization. That, that whether globalization is just continuing but just at a slower rate. So y- we don't have a lot of you know clear data on the, on that kind of the supply side of or, you know. It's not like it's published monthly or anything. So it is very hard to get that read, and we'll only con- we'll, we'll only know probably with the benefit of history what what the, what the trend is, and you know maybe in in a couple of years.
0: Anyways, let's uh, move on to um, just maybe a little... Uh, because we just finished the month of February, maybe just a, a couple of minutes on discussing early takeaways from uh, the shortest month of the year. Um, probably some investors will will be happy to know that it was it is the shortest month. But uh, from a CTA slash trend following point of view, it certainly looks like it was an okay month. And perhaps you could say for some, it was even better than okay. Um, and of course, driven by... Exactly those things that we've talked about, uh, fixed income in particular. But I will say, when I look at our own portfolio, at least I would say gains were, you know, came from quite a few different sectors. Maybe not to the same extent as fixed income, but it wasn't just fixed income. I would say, uh, at least in our case um, for February. And um, I, one thing I did notice, and I don't say people just—I just, just want to um, preface this by saying I don't mention this with any particular agenda. Um, But because we do discuss replication strategies quite a lot, and we did talk about last year that maybe replicators were doing so well last year because trends were fairly easy, fairly stable. I have noticed at least that um, the trend replicator that we like to follow um, and that tracks the Sock CTA index has not quite lived up to... uh, uh, to be able to deliver uh, the gross uh, returns uh, before fees uh, of that index so far this year. Um, and I think it is because trend. It's, it's getting a little bit harder. Trends are not just in a straight line, and we're seeing a little bit of movement around in terms of exposure. Um, now, of course, it's still very early days for 2023, so who knows where it's going to end up. But it is important just to note that maybe some of, the, at least my own concerns, um, you know, uh, have been proven so far this year at least. My own trend barometer finished at 41, so that suggests kind of a neutral month anyways, Um, but the numbers are as follows. beat up 50, up 1.34%, pretty much the same for the year. SockGen CTA index up 2.09, up one and a quarter for the year. SockGen trend one, up 1.85, up 0.45 for the year. And the short-term traders index, perhaps not surprising, down for the month, um, quarter percent, down 39 basis points. And that in a month where... Equities were down a little, 2.5% or so, and bonds were down. So that positive correlation between stocks and bonds continues, which, of course, is why everybody needs some CTA and trend exposure, in our opinion. Anything that has uh, stood out for you uh, from the data you've seen so far from managers?
1: No, I just as similar to yourself, I, I would say generally a, a positive month, the usual uh, dispersion, obviously, and, you know, probably declines and, fixed income markets uh, the big opportunity and obviously the dollar has bounced back so you know it, it, it was a month we, we've kind of gone through a period of dollar strength to dollar weakness to dollar strength again so certainly uh, you know how responsive models would have been to that would, would have definitely been um important and then i guess as you say from the, on the replication side it could be that in that type of environment where trend trends are in the midst of changing, it could be uh, it could be more uh, typical, uh, difficult to run that strategy. But but no, I think it's been uh, you know a positive month. But but kind of you know year to date uh, on the managed Future side, positive, but but with a decent amount of dispersion even already at this
0: stage, I, I would say. Yeah, no, I think that's perfectly fair. Now. We, we mentioned this thing about um, exposure uh, probably being a little bit different um, because of how trends have uh, panned out the last few months. And of course, a couple of days ago, Bloomberg, Lou Wang posted a, um, a, a an article, uh, which is one of those things that certainly gets my blood flowing when I see them because it's again these investment banks coming out saying exactly what's going to happen in terms of equity exposure in particular for trend followers uh, if the markets go through certain levels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we brought it up from time to time. We're going to do it again uh, for a few minutes now because uh, the headline was as dramatic as JP Morgan says, quants to sell 50 billions of, of stock if chart test fails. A break in the S&P 500 below 200-day uh, average could spur exodus, quant more sensitive to route than a month ago. Uh, that's something that Morgan Stanley... So, I mean, you can take it wherever you want to go. Um, I think we need to uh, just push back a little bit. No, I mean, we've
1: spoken about this before, and I've seen uh, there's a couple of strategists that write about this uh, very frequently, and I've always found it to be far from, you know... Uh, the experience of, of kind of what, what, what i have seen in terms of cta positioning actual positioning in the past and um you know uh, but actually it's it's quite a nice segue into um a paper that was released late last year so so a wrote a paper called "The footprint of uh, trend following and actually in the paper they say um you know uh Today, there are numerous models and research groups seeking to quantify and monitor the the supposed market positioning of trend followers. And you'll often see trend headlines like trend followers are expected to buy or sell an aggregate X billion notion of equities next week. So exactly uh, what what we're talking about. So so what they do in, in the paper is they're trying to estimate... The market participant, the market participation of trend-following uh, CTAs in 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 the uh, in the futures markets, and what they're doing is basically trying to provide an estimate of the trend-following industry's uh, share of positions held and volume traded in 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 the market. So, um, it's it's a topic that has come up. You know, I would say, you know, periodically it, it was probably. Uh, Two to four, you know, back in 2019 as well. Um, you know, when there was concerns about is there too much money in trend following, and is that was that the reason for, uh, uh, you know, performance? Um, uh, but it, it it it's probably back now because people will say, oh, trend following and, and managed features might raise lots of assets, and you know they're going to be too big, and that will lead to, to, to deteriorating performance, etc. So. What they do in the paper, the first thing is that you have to say, well, what's the size of the CTA industry, which is always, and what's the size of trend following? So they, they've they gone with, uh, they've kind of assumed that trend following assets are 300 billion. Now, they look at the Barclays CTA um Barclay hedge uh, sorry, data on on CTA managed futures uh, AUM, uh, which was it was 365 billion in the Q4. It was it was over 400 billion in Q3 when they wrote the paper. But they take out the systematic traders uh, subcomponent of that, which was uh, 365 billion back then. Now you could quibble with that. I mean, uh, you know, when when I was at Abbey Capital, we did a study on this, and uh, what we did is we we we, we Delved into all of the the constituents, and we and we uh, split all the managers between trend and non-trend, and about, only about half the managers were, were were trend following. So it was more like uh, 160, 170 billion, you know. So I, I would say 300 billion could be on the high side. Against that, obviously, there are people running trend following uh, programs that are not CGAs. So large public pension funds, we know, are doing this, running it in-house. So you know, I would say you got to, yeah, you could bias it up a little bit for that. The second thing is you have to adjust for the level of volatility. So the key thing is what level of vol are these assets running at? You could be running 300 billion at 6 six vol, and it's only going to have more, half the market uh, footprint of um, 300 billion at 12 vol. They assume uh, 12 vol um, is, is the kind of... Uh, how they they calculated the positions when we did the study uh before we the median uh trend follower uh vol was 13 percent. so so they're not far off but it, but again it would it would mean that yeah it, it would be fair enough to buy us up there and if their if their number is a little bit biased higher then that would be fair enough but still 300 billion i would say sense is maybe a being conservative, and certainly on the high side as opposed to uh, the low side. And what to do then is uh, construct a a, a trend-following model. So assuming that a trend-following model was being run at you know three hundred billion in assets at twelve all, what would the positions look like, and what how does that compare to the volume and open interest uh, traded in the market? now they don't give give the details the precise details of the trend following model, but but I think you could assume it's kind of a you know multi speed uh, with short term long term and and medium term trend following. One kind of interesting adjustment that they make when they look at the volume and open interest data they take out uh, all of the the, uh, volume and open interest related to spread trading, calendar spread trading, because they say, you know, that's not... uh um, the kind of liquidity that that directional traders can access. So I can see the logic for that in terms of of the open interest. I guess uh, I mean obviously those traders are still in that market dealing from you know in terms of they could still be potential counterparts for for a trade. Um, you know just because they're doing a, a spread trade, I, I would have thought. Um, but I could see if you're trying to measure. How big a footprint trend, follower, trend followers as are as as a percentage of the total directional amount of money in in the market? Yeah, it makes sense to 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 take strip those out. And it is interesting, you know, they present data on that front. You know, if you and as once you see the data, it makes sense. If you look at markets like short-term interest rates and commodities, uh, a lot more of the volume is outside the front contract of the futures market. And there's a lot more spread trading activity. So makes sense, obviously, within the commodities, you know, people do a lot more uh, calendar spreads based on, you know, their read on supply and demand out the curve. And obviously, then in the short term interest rate markets, people are trying to express a view on rates at different points in the curve. So that's why you'll get a lot more calendar related activity on that side too. Whereas if you look at um, equity indices uh, and, and bonds, it's much more focused on the front month contract. So in terms of their findings... Um,
0: well, before you before you reveal that, before you reveal that, I really would like just to give people a little bit more of the context from this article. Just so now we have a firm, you know, experienced in the CTA industry, doing a lot of homework to find out what do we really think the uh, footprint of CTAs are. Then on the other side, we have these articles popping up on Bloomberg um, where investment banks, in my view, and I'm also uh, happy to share why I think they do it, but they're coming with these incredible headlines, usually uh, headlines that um, could instill some fear in investors. And I can only imagine that they do this um, to get some turnovers or get people to trade, get people to get out of some positions maybe because why else would you do it, um, frankly, especially because you're talking about your own clients, which are the CTAs, of course. But they, they use words like, should the benchmark gauge slip under the its average price for the past 200 days, so-called commodity trading advisors, should be forced to unload about 50 billion of equities, the JP Morgan team estimate. So that's one thing they came out with. Um, and they use words like, quant traders were pushed to unwind their bearish wages during the January uh, rally, a move that has made their positions more uh, now more sensitive to, down, to the downside. And again, they could say here, this is, I think, uh, Morgan Stanley, a continued sell-off in the vicinity of 5% would force, and then they even used the word systemic, not even spelling it right, systematic strategies, but they write systemic strategies to dump 55 billion to 60 billion of shares in the following week, according to an estimate from Morgan Stanley. Now, they're, they're coming up with these completely crazy suggestions, frankly, um, and I can only suggest that they listen to Alan and me discussing uh, all of these points with CTAs because you will find that that is not how we do things um far from it um there is so much more to uh, that goes into it so anyways i just wanted to give some of those colorful headlines Alan. and then now that i've sort of set the stage about what these investment banks are saying about the the influence of ctas and the big volume that's going to go through let's talk about what quantica found in terms of, of yes yeah. so in
1: terms of findings you know what they found was that ctas had trend following ctas a candidate for about 0.6% of directional traded volume in equities. So, yes, if, if you read you're the Bloomberg sure it's six, article... It's, you're, sure, you're
0: sure it's not 60% No, like. it's not
1: 60%. 0.6% was, was the, the, their estimate. Um, so, you know, and they found that it, it accounted for... Now, 10% of the directional open interest was held on average, uh, in equi- so in equities. So that's basically saying, if you take all the open interest held by people who are taking directional risk... Um, so I, I, who is that? I guess it's uh, macro traders as well. It's it's re- real money accounts. So CJs would be about ten percent of that uh, is of what they uh, in terms of the open interest. But in terms of the the directional volume traded, obviously there's a lot of volume intraday. Uh, it's only zero point six percent. So in terms of doesn't sound like an enormous footprint when you when you hear that that that's that stat, you know, in fixed income and short-term interest rates is one point three percent in currencies, even less. Now in currencies, they, they they basically took the futures numbers, but then they grossed it up based on the fact that um, you know most of the currency trading is OTC. So so this is another area where where it's hard to discern what's the footprint because you know you could look at the you know currencies is a good example if you just looked at futures. Uh, CTAs might look like they're a big player, but obviously most of, of volumes in currency trading are traded um, uh, uh, OTC. And, and equally, obviously, equities. There's um, they give the number. You know, global equity market cap is a hundred trillion dollars now. Global e- equity futures open interest is is on average about one one point three trillion. So you've got the futures, but then obviously you have the the real money equities tra- uh, traded in the background. So. It you know when you look at it, taking all of this together, even there's um, that uh, equity market participation of trend followers has never exceeded three and a half percent of total futures directional volume over any five day period. Um, so again, highlighting that uh, yeah, it, it, particularly with respect to equities, uh, ha- there there doesn't appear to be a, a large footprint. Now I, I guess you could say that's just trend. You've got short-term traders as well. They could, at certain times, their trading could line up with um, with trend. And, and that's possible. But, you know, I don't think there's, you know, how much is, is the short-term traders? You, maybe it's under 10 billion or so, or maybe a bit more. And, and those guys can be short-term momentum and mean reversion. So they can be going uh, the other way at, at, at times as well. So, I, you know, I thought... Um, it was interesting and that's based as we said on on that kind of relatively conservative possibly higher estimate of 300 billion um in 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 cta exposure uh sorry trend following exposure so you know but it is an interesting question like what what, what do we think would be a reasonable estimate of of what to expect you know like if we were if, if somebody was to say to you well if the market goes down how much uh, cta selling do you think you will see in the s&p uh, so i started thinking about that um You know, first question is, are CTAs long the S&P 500 at the moment? Um, Hard to know. (laughs) I mean, I would guess looking at the chart, probably, I would say. I mean, interestingly, we talked about replication. uh, So I looked at DBMF, which is a proxy for the industry. um, And across equities, DBMF is long 23%. But it's uh, all in the MSCI Europe Asia Far East. So MSCI EFI long forty six percent, actually short in the S and P five hundred thirteen percent, and short the MSCI Emerging Markets nine and a half percent. So that's what when DBMF do their do the replication. That's what they're coming out with. Now I don't, you know, I they're only trading three contracts, three contracts. So you know maybe it's 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 imprecise. Uh, and as I say, if I was to look at the chart of the S and P five hundred. You've got a, you know, obviously a very long term uptrend and we had a trend down last year. We've had a trend up. So it's kind of you've got conflicting factors. But I would say over kind of the short to medium term horizon, the market has been rising for the last few months. So I would expect unbalanced, probably more longs than shorts.
0: Yeah, I I think I think it's probably something that we might come uh, and talk about a a little bit later. I mean, of course, I have, you know, insights to how a longer term manager is positioned. And, um, you know, that's not on the long side for for s&p and, and nasdaq right but of course in europe where you've got new all-time highs you you have to be long i mean that's just the way it works right so i think there's a lot of uh, mixed uh, i think equities actually is a very mixed bag for managers right now and it's very dependent on your speed of trend and and this is also why to me it's even more infuriating that you have people coming out with these kind of um, you know um uh, stories because as i said i really do believe that this is only being created to get people to you know trade more um uh, which is which is a great shame and and even if they were right even if they were right well, what can you use it for you can't just plug out of the thin air and say okay well you have to go short because CTAs go short. No, no, that's, a, that's the worst reason, because we're, we're, we're wrong 60% of the time, so don't go short just because we do it.
1: But like I say, like, if we were to guess, so, so say if you were to say, okay, maybe DBMF is is right in aggregate, and CTAs are about 20%, 23% long equities, because actually if you look at the SOCGEN trend indicator, which is just one simple moving average cross, uh, and that, that indicator is long, it's 15 equity contracts, so you know, th- there could be could be on balance a bit long um but but what would the size of that long position you know i would guess somewhere between five and ten percent um so even if it was ten percent based on the 300 billion so that would be you know 30 billion of of notional exposure now you know it doesn't it beggars belief that you know once the 200 day moving average is breached that all ctas are going to rush in to sell their you know their, their long position so you know that's that would get worked out over the course of probably 10 days or something, I would guess, maybe longer. So you're looking at maybe, you know, 3 billion of selling on, on any given day on that basis, as opposed to the, what did they say, 30 billion or 50 billion or whatever it was.
0: But but Alan, this is the thing, and I, I, I hope people are learning um, or taking this away from our conversations with these managers, because you and I know well that that's not how it works. And when I say that, I'll give a very simple uh, example. And that is, you know, let's just say that the market moves down and and you need to, to sell some stuff. Well, if the volatility changes at the same time, you may not need to sell nearly as much, meaning there are so many, or if correlations change, you may not need to. So there are so many moving parts. And this is why when people who know better come out and make, such claims saying, oh, if the market goes below the 200-day moving average, then this whole, I mean, if it was so simple, why have we spent, you know, almost 50 years trying to work out how to do trend following? If we could just read Bloomberg and say, oh, it's the 200-day moving average all the CTAs are looking at, how did I not know that, right? I mean, it's complete crazy. Nevertheless, we're here fighting the good fight and just letting people know that they should not always trust uh, what they read. Uh, in the news, I guess. But anyways, it was a great piece uh, from Quantica, um, and um, so at least we have some some numbers. And actually, one of the things that I remember from you, the paper that you co-wrote uh, at Abbey was the surprise I had when you had ju- adjusted. I think actually the AUM you got to, correct me if I'm wrong, was even down to about 120 billion uh, in trend. It was much, much lower than the headline number that we often quote. And of course, let's not forget that the 365 billion or 75 billion, whatever the number is that Barclay Hedge uh, quotes, I mean, about half of that is Bridgewater. But we have no idea. I mean, one thing I would say, uh, Bridgewater could be a trend follower, but they've never called themselves a trend follower. So I would be surprised if they were a trend follower that just follows price. I, I don't think they are.
1: No absolutely no I think that was I I, I when we did that study we went th- uh, through all of the, the managers and basically if the if their correlation to trend was below I think we cut off was 0.6 um, we categorized them as non-trend and if it was 0.6 or higher categorized them as trend and then obviously adjusted the AUM to 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 the median which was 13 ball and yeah I'd have to check it, it would I think you're right about 120 130 billion obviously we've had Performance since then, so so that number would be a bit higher now. But um, yeah, three hundred probably, probably. No, but it's good that they use yeah.
0: that number because at least we're not trying to underplay no exactly uh, our role. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's perfect. And fine their philosophy actually.
1: around taking out the calendar um, uh, spread trading was to that to that aim as well to try and be as conservative as
0: possible. Well. We've got more goodies in our bag today um, because you found two other papers from our friends over at Aspect um, that you thought would be educational. So why don't we dive into those? I only had a very quick skim of them, so I'll let you take the lead. But I think the first paper um, that they um, published uh, recently is called Trend Following Why? Uh, Question mark. Um, that's always a good question it is yeah i mean it's uh there's a couple of papers that they are both
1: I, i i think educational um type papers um and you know obviously trend following why is very much around um you know why 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 trend following in your portfolio um you know all of the all of the i i guess the uh typical arguments around uh, diversification um you know uh, return enhancement uh, reducing drawdown re- you know re- enhancing risk adjusted returns etc uh, and and looking at the performance in different kind of um equity regime so um you know i i, I thought it was just ni- nicely summarized but within there there was one interesting chart which, which i knew you would like cuz uh, it's a favorite topic of yours which is uh, um how commodities do in periods of crisis um, so what they they have in their in their paper there is just um the, the PL attribution basically by the different market sectors by year, which is quite interesting. You know, you can go back and, and kind of remember the, the, the history and what drove markets in different periods. But it is interesting when you look back at uh, some of the big years in, in managed futures, how, you know, which markets drove the performance. So obviously everybody always likes to go back to 2008 and you can see in in that period, actually, I think currencies looked like they were negative, but all of the commodities were positive. So um, energy markets, positive, um, uh, agriculturals, uh, positive. You can see metals there as well. And obviously, you um, I suppose that was the year where, you know, obviously crude oil had gone up and then came back down. So I, I think CJ has made money on both the long and, and short side. You can see in the previous two years, uh, 06, 07, um, or in that period, you know, the metals. I know the uh, uh, commodity, um, copper had a big uptrend in that period. So you can see the predominance of, of metals in, in, in that period. and uh, And obviously, you know, more recently, in, um in covid you know obviously bonds a, a big driver in that period but um you know if you go back to 2000 2002 and that bear Market again uh, energies was was a big driver there so um I'm struggling to make out some of the colors here yeah stock indices to an extent back in 2002 um but yeah very interesting because it is a topic that that we we, we allude to you know people talk about you know, where does this diversification come from in equity downturns? And, you know, the initial assumption is often, oh, it's from being short equities. And then, well, no, that's not always the case. And then it was always, well, it's just that CTAs were always long bonds in those periods, and, and that's why they made money. Uh and obviously, bonds was was a big driver last year, but on the short side. But but it's the commodity story that that is interesting as well. Um, and and it is interesting how you know. I guess the, the the intuition around this is when you get particularly equity bear markets, that tend to be associated with economic downturns. So that influences demand for for lots of stuff. So you tend to get particularly in the economically sensitive commodities like. Um, copper and, and crude oil, you tend to get moves in those, but you can, you know, obviously last year we saw um, agricultural commodities being influenced by, by the war in Ukraine as well. So I just thought it was a useful, for, uh, for for people who don't have access to that kind of data, useful uh, to see that in, 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 in a nice visual.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I agree. Of course, people should just be aware that this is, of course, one way of trend following that has produced these type of of attributions, um, but no, I mean uh, it's it's always useful with uh, with good educational material that explains uh, some of these uh, benefits, and especially when you put some some pictures to it, because uh, you know a picture says a thousand words, as they say, and I think that is that is true. But they didn't just do the why trend; they also did the how.
1: Yeah, for sure, and and that it, that is very much. Uh, this is a, a literally a step by step guide to to doing trend following at a, at a high level like what are the steps you you go through you know f- from literally getting your your market price data uh and, and you know it, it's good that how it that explains that you know um the S and P is is measured in index points. Uh, crude oil is in dollars. You know, you have to make adjustments for this. Different markets have different volatilities, so we have to adjust for all of these different things. They they create um, their own risk-adjusted returns, and and then look at all the markets on on the same uh, playing field, and then talk about the different ways of of trend identification. You know, moving averages um, being being the most uh, typical, and, and then how do you move from kind of having an indicator how does that go from a you know indicator to to position uh, and they have a kind of a um, uh, a picture there of how you know a, a typical trend develops and how the, the strength of the trend uh, signal evolves and how that translates into different um, uh, uh, position sizing and then the, the how you build in or, or account for volatility scaling and and, and sector weight so all of, all of the stuff that I guess Hardcore listeners of Ttu would probably know, but for anybody who hasn't developed a trend uh, program themselves, uh, I, I thought I thought it would be a, a, a good resource. Um, but interesting as well, because it, it's very much how the kind of the European style uh, trend following, and this is kind of the ongoing debate we hear about on top traders and Plug, with some people being advocates of not volatility sizing and looking for outliers. The aspect approach is very much of having the largest position at uh, at the kind of meat of the trend and then looking you know, looking to be more scaled back as the trend becomes overextended, and the risk of of a trend reversal uh, becomes uh, higher. So, so it is very much constructed and explained from from that perspective. And as we know, we there is an alternative view of of of, of basically not volatizing and keeping your exposures high and living with the risk of those reversals. But from from the perspective of what we might call the more T- typical European approach, uh, I thought it was a good explanation and, and worthwhile for people to take a look at.
0: Yeah, which is kind of nicely, uh, a nice segue for us to the last topics we want to talk about um, today, which is kind of our takeaway so far um, with all the managers we've spoken to and the conversations we've had. And of course, this topic uh, has also uh, uh, come up. And I will actually go as far as saying that I don't think necessarily it's a European Um, choice anymore. I think what we've come across, that's one of my takeaways at at least, is that I think most uh, of the managers we, uh, if not all the managers we've spoken to actually so far, uh, are of the school that you need to uh, adjust for. You need to adjust your risk on a daily basis. You can't just do it through uh, initial sizing and then a, a training stop loss. But I will also go on record to say that in the long run... Um, you know, returns are not super different. Maybe the path of how they get to the returns might be a little bit different. So it's it's hard to say uh, one is better than the other. Uh, but I will say that, of course, you can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own data. So um, when when you do look at the data and you do compare at least people who are known to have static position sizing with people who are known to have um, dynamic position sizing, which is not the same as, by the way, volatility targeting. That's completely different. Um, then it does uh, look like the evidence uh, is in favor of the people using dynamic position sizing. But we don't want to open that kind of kind of worms today. Um, we don't want to get too many hate tweets either. So, uh, so we're just going to leave it at that. But tell me a little bit from your perspective, Alan. What are some of the takeaways uh, so far? From your side,
1: yeah, I think um, a few interesting themes have definitely come up. You know, um, we we had Katie Kaminsky on uh, talking about crisis alpha, and I, and I think what she spoke about, I think, resonated with a lot of people in terms of explaining, um, you know, that that trend following isn't a crisis alpha strategy per se, but has can achieve crisis office at, at times, which I think makes sense. Uh, and why? Because the strategy is uh, opportunistic and unbiased and, and liquid. So I think that, that was a nice kind of interesting um, kind of uh, explanation of that, that whole area. But, you know, more generally, it, 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 there, is, there is this trade-off that, that, that CTAs are trying to solve for. And that's certainly something that came up in all of the conversations that you have. You want to generate absolute return. At the same time, drawdowns are painful. So you want to have think about, do you want to try and mitigate drawdowns in some ways? Um, and at the same time, what's the overall objective? Is it just to generate absolute return or is it absolute return and crisis alpha? And if so, do you want to do something to your trend portfolio to make it more uh, crisis alpha proof, uh, I guess? So, so you've kind of got these conflicting... Um, uh, objectives maybe uh, i think fair to say and and then you have different levers that, and the levers being you know okay whether you're pure trend or not and um, you know uh, as we talked about you could add in some non-trend like carry to mitigate your drawdown but at the expense of the of the crisis alpha characteristic you can trade faster and that can help you at turning points uh, there, there seems to be a general acceptance that that can be helpful in terms of you know um uh, Dealing with those equity turning points, but but it comes at a cost uh, in terms of t- absolute return. You know, um, and I think the other point that 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 really has come out very strongly through all of the conversations, particularly with the larger managers, is that you know there's a general acceptance of all of these trade offs now, and yeah, you know, it's 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 a it's a conversation between the, the, those CTAs and and their investors as to exactly what they're achieving in their, in their portfolio. So it's not like people are slipping in a bit of non-trend <laughs> without saying it so i, I don't get that sense I, I think i think you know i think in the diversified systems it's understood that 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 those that there is that diversification in there for, to try and deliver a smoother return profile but you can get the uh, you can get the pure trend program from from those managers as well so i think that's certainly an, an interesting development how Rightly or wrongly, it's it's been left to the, to the investor to decide uh, to to a large extent. Um, yeah, so I think that would, that that's the, definitely one of the big themes that, that have come come out. What, what did you think of that?
0: Yeah, no, agree. So in a sense that w- what surprised me was this thing that that m- many of our friends and peers have gone down to this being a solution provider type, uh, you know, structure and. I um, I understand fully uh, why they're doing it, I think, and I also think that there can be some some uh, benefits uh, to it, but I also think there are some dangers, and I have this sneaky feeling inside me that clients don't necessarily always know what is best for them when it comes to this strategy, um, so they're gonna choose something that feels good, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for the best thing for their portfolio. So but um, I'm sure our friends can guide them safely uh, into making uh, some good choices. A a couple of other things that have stood out uh, to me. One was, and I actually think, maybe you can remember this, I think it was Phil from uh, CFM who I just published the episode with today, uh, so it's out live. I think that he mentioned something that they had studied the broader CT industry quite a lot and what they found was that there was nothing left once you took out trend. So trend was really the dominating performance driver of the CTA industry. And I guess if you look at the, just very simply, the short-term traders index, you compare it to the trend index, I mean, of course, it's that, that would support it completely. But I thought it was interesting that he brought that up. Um, I had not... Thought about it, but clearly they had looked into it, and I'm pretty sure he was the one who uh, brought it up. I thought that was really interesting. You know, where does the value uh, of the CTA space really come from? Um, Yeah, another thing that actually uh, was very interesting to to dig into was uh, with AQR. Uh, The fact that they have moved away from pure price trend, and now they, uh, my understanding was, I could be wrong, that they, probably kind of 50-50 price trend and economic trend, as they call it, or conviction trend. I'm not entirely sure what uh, what uh, Yao was calling it, but uh, I thought that was very interesting. Um, and it goes to show that um, you, as an investor, if you want to find pure trend, you have to look a little bit under the hood to find them. And also, I guess, um, what I've learned so far from, um, I can't remember how many we've uh, published now, but but quite a few, there aren't that many true, pure trend followers left, frankly. Um, so that's another thing that I um, that I take away from these conversations. Also take away from the conversations when we spoke to uh, to Nicole. Um, um, one thing actually, back to the footprint. But of course, they're short-term managers. So it's completely different from what I would say at, at you know trend following. But where they talked about that in some markets they were about one percent of the daily volume. That that number surprised me, uh, frankly, Um, that that's another insignificant number. And so uh, good on them that they can still find ways of delivering alpha. And so, yeah, I mean, there's so many. It's been a very fascinating journey for me personally. Um, Some of the people we, of course, knew well um, before we spoke to them. Uh, Others were new to us, not the firms, but the individuals. And it's been such a pleasure to to, to just feel how open they have been in our conversations. There's been no you know nothing that we couldn't really bring up and then they you know it's not that they were given questions in advance that they could rehearse. I mean they had a good idea of the topics because uh, they're the same uh, for every recording. Um, but I think they've been incredibly gracious with their time and with their openness and their insights. And I think that it has demonstrated how, how trend is not the same uh, once you dig into it. And uh, and I think that's incredibly exciting, uh, frankly. Also makes it maybe, you can speak to that maybe, Alan. It also makes the job of a, an allocator maybe a little bit harder than perhaps I appreciated. Uh, before, you know, after having heard these things, you kind of think, well, it, it can't be that difficult, but I can understand why it is.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, definitely, everybody had their particular flavor, and um, you know, I think, I think from the allocator perspective, you, you know, you, you're aware of all of these uh, nuances uh, with the different managers, and you know, people always say, who, "Who do you think is the best trend follower?" and or you know, it's like, well, you know, just can't say, you know, everybody does it slightly differently, and and there's merits, and and it's there's often those choices reflect lots of different things, like you know. Uh, you know, um, you know, not wanting to have the pure trend exposure, or feeling that that's a better way, and and you know, it, people have been um, very upfront and saying they're they are running a business as well, and and you have to be conscious of that, and having you know having a stable and consistent business is is, is important too. So I mean, you have to be conscious of that. Um, so I think all of those are, are, are relevant factors. Um, it's been interesting as well. I, I mean, I've enjoyed hearing from those managers who have done those long-term studies you know cfm 200 years um of trend following and aqr 100 years and then yeah also referenced that they had done a you know a 50-year study on macro momentum and um, which is interesting too um so that i i found that interesting and and the cfm um you know 200 years and 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 you know we talked around that what's the relevance of of those you know the old data etc but it is you know th- there is that persistence in in the older correlation in markets that, that that goes back over that very long time period. So, um, you know, I think that that's been uh, really interesting too. So, uh, and Quest, you know, as you talked about Quest, they're a very interesting point they make about their preference for trading in futures over over options, even though they want to express a long vol profile and how you can create that using certain contracts and building your positions to to generate an option like uh, payoff profile, but how it can be more efficient to do that in the futures markets.
0: Yeah. And I will actually say that I think also, um, I think all of our conversations has has been phenomenal. They've been delightful. There is uh, something for everyone in all of them, for sure, But I'm also very excited about the ones we haven't released yet, um, because some of them uh, that we've recorded, a couple that's uh, coming out next week, um, with people that I did not necessarily know personally, at least one of them I I didn't know personally. um, and, And he was fantastic. I mean, it was a very, very interesting, very open, very frank conversation yeah, I mean and 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 you and I have decided to uh, continue the journey a little bit longer than we originally ant- anticipated because I think we both realized how enjoyable it's been and more more importantly we are obviously trying to on one side help investors look at the space by giving them access to this information and of course we are trying to help the managers, you know, um get this spotlight and so that we can help, you know, the industry as a whole. So uh, hopefully that's the way it's being uh, received. So um, as I'm sure you know, I would uh, like to encourage you uh, to maybe help us a little bit, get a broader audience um, by leaving a rating and review uh, on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, um, and share these episodes with your friends, your colleagues, or anyone you know that are into investing where you think, well, they might actually learn something, uh, not necessarily from Alan and me, but from our, a lot of our guests, at least there should be a few nuggets to uh to, uh, to pick up um, and uh, you can of course also as as you uh, often do write into us and, and have uh, your questions brought up info at toptradersonplot.com is the email next week I'm joined by Rob um, I guess he's getting ready for his book tour uh, I don't know if it's a global book tour but it must be a book tour of some sort soon so make sure you send in your questions um, for that uh, episode Um, and we'll do our best to uh, bring them up. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We uh, can't wait to be back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.